Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast, helping moms to love wisely and well. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Wild, integrative pediatrician and mom of eight sons who continually challenge and teach me. Over the years, I've learned that rather than outward technique, it's the internal landscape of the heart that affects parenting more than anything else. Mothering is about being, not just doing. You have everything you need within you to become the parent you want to be. So let's bring it out. Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast. Today we have the opportunity to speak with Vivek Patel. He is a conscious parenting coach and leader of various parenting communities, including Meaningful Ideas and Gentle Parents Unite. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Mary. I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate the name of your podcast, the Compassion Parenting Podcast. Yes. And that's really the basis of the parenting style that I teach. And I really want to dig deep into the parenting style that you teach, because I really think it's kind of like a Venn diagram that there's going to be a lot of overlap, that we really have a lot of resonance in terms of where we're coming from. So maybe to begin with, I'm just going to jump right in and ask how do we really become more conscious? How do we become more gentle? And I know so many parents want to have a more peaceful, conscious parenting approach, but they see the need to maintain some order and address problematic behavior. So how do we really maintain boundaries without crossing into the world of coercion and force? Yeah, it's really uh, an important thing to think about because that coercion and force actually ends up working against us a lot of the time. I would say in human relationships, it works against us all the time, you know? Yes. And of course, we're not talking about like a moment where your kid's about to run into the street and get hit by a car and you pull them back. Because that's the argument I always get from people. I actually call it the run into the street, get hit by a car, eat poison and die, touch a hot stove and get burned objection. Because (laughs) (laughs) I've heard it so many times that the words just roll off my tongue. But of course, you know, like gentle parents, conscious parents, we're not letting our kids get hit by cars all the time. That's not the idea. But that's not really coercion because I would do that for you. I would do that for anyone, you know, whether it's it's not about having power over someone to to stop them from running to the street and getting hit by a car. So those kind of extreme examples are kind of a whole other subset of how we deal with them, how we work with them. But actually, one of my podcast episodes is how to how to get your kid to look both ways before they cross the street, the gentle parenting way, (laughs) 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 specifically because of that. And that's the thing, you know, like, so in that story where I talk about how I helped a a very rambunctious six-year-old learn to cross the street, and I'm going to tell that story just now, but in that story, what what I focused on was connection and play and teaching skills, which is a totally different thing than trying to give consequences or make rules and enforce those rules, you know, that it's just not as effective. So a number of years ago, I was teaching some parenting workshops in uh, Washington, D.C., I think this is 2017. And uh, one of the parents that was there, they had this very wild six-year-old running everywhere, beautifully had a mind of their own and a really powerful personality. Mm -hmm. And one of the effects of that was that they were in a moment's notice, they would just suddenly take off and run in any direction that occurred to them without thinking or noticing the consequence. Mm -hmm. And the parent was always like, don't cross the street without looking. You have to, you have to hold my hand, stay here and grabbing them and telling them the rules and telling them the thing. And Telling them you're going to get hurt if you go and I'm trying to keep you safe. But you could see this was an ongoing thing that had been happening for a while. Yes. And so, and none of those things were were going in. You could almost see, uh, like I could almost see the 
suggestions from the parent and the commands from the parent bouncing off <laughs> the kid's consciousness <laughs> and not going in, you know? It makes me think of uh, the Charlie Brown thing where the kids would talk and the teacher's voice would just sound like, wah, 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 wah. Right. They're not actually letting it in. And so later that evening, I was playing with the kids and, and uh, the six-year-old said, hey, let's go play outside. And I said, sure. So, because kids always want to play with me because I just like, you know, resonate with them so deeply. Yes. And uh, I'm sure you know what that's like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As soon as it's a thing, right? As soon as kids sense there's an adult that respects them, they'll just follow you anywhere, right? It's so, yeah. it's so great. And anyway, so we went for a walk and at one point the kid darted out into the street. Now I did a quick check and it was safe. There was no cars coming. So I just let them go out into the street. Mm -hmm. And then I joined them and we started running around and stomping around and playing around and kicking stones and stuff. And I started going, hey, isn't it great that we have so much space to play here in the middle of the street? No wonder you like playing. On the sidewalk, there's just not as much room. And on the grass, you can't kick stones because you can't even see them. This is the only place that we can really do this. It's so wonderful that you showed me that we can play here. And she, she stopped it. The first adult that had ever told her it's wonderful to play in the street. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I can hear as I'm doing it, I have this sort of narrative of the mainstream parenting going on in my head all the time because I can hear people saying, oh, you're teaching them to, what's it, condoning bad behavior. Oh, you're condoning okay, bad behavior, yes. right? That's the phrase I hear all the time. But I mean, I know kids and I know how learning works and I know how skills develop and I know how attention works. And so I, I try to work with the principles of how things actually work. So anyways, so we're doing that. And then I said, you know what? Adults are always telling you not to run to the street. And she looks at me like, yeah, why? I said, well, here's the thing. Number one, what? what are we doing right now? She said, we're playing. I said, yeah, play is the most important thing. And you love to play. And I said, you know, the reason that adults are doing that is because they want to protect your, your ability to play. She was mm. like, really? I said, yeah. I said, check this out. What happens if you take a grape and you put it on the ground and you step on it? She goes, it goes squish. I said, yeah, squish. I said, let's pretend we're, we're squishing a bunch of grapes. So we started walking around the street, squishing grapes, pretending we were squishing grapes and stomping our feet, <laughs> making all sorts of noises. I said, you know, the reason that happens is you're so much bigger than a little grape. I said, it's the same thing with a car and a little kid. I mean, even with an adult, if a car hits you or me, we get to get squashed like a grape. And she goes, ah, grape. And then we started squishing grapes and pretending they were people. And so it's like this whole silly thing, right? Mm -hmm. I said, so if that happens, it's not like you're in trouble or something. But the thing is, you won't be able to play. And then I won't be able to have fun with you and you won't be able to have fun. That's no fun, right? She goes, that wouldn't be fun. I said, yeah, so let's like figure out what we can do so we can keep having fun. Yeah. And so then we started, I said, this is why the look both ways before you cross the street thing is so important. So then we started practicing and we pretended we would stick our heads out between the cars. And then what was coming? Sometimes it was a dinosaur. Sometimes it was a truck and sometimes it was nothing. Mm. And we played this whole game of looking. So anyways, we did this whole thing. The whole thing lasted maybe 10 minutes. It wasn't like a long thing. Was, didn't, yes. I mean, even, even the story is longer than the actual thing that happened. Right. right. <laughs> because a six-year-old doesn't have that much attention span. So like mm -hmm. I'm also watching... Where's their energy? Where's their attention span? What do I need to keep them engaged? And then, but after that 10 minutes, the next morning, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. The next morning, we're all getting ready and we're, we're getting ready to go in the car and go for, go for a drive. And this kid suddenly takes off, rips their hand out of their mom's hand, takes off to run between two cars and suddenly stops, peeks their head out, looks both ways. Wow. My heart's palpitating when this is happening, right? Yes. And then crosses the street. And mom yells at them, almost like she's angry. What was that? What did you just do? And like she's always done it, she goes, oh, I, I look both ways before I cross the street. And, her, <laughs> and the parents like grabbing their head going, why? Why would you do that? And she goes, the vague taught me. Wow. <laughs>
<laughs> that is such a beautiful story. And it, it illustrates the power of collaboration, the power of respecting kids and their intelligence and their deepest wishes. And it shows really coming at it from a deep humility. And I think as parents, sometimes we forget these things. We kind of are acting out of fear. And so we forget that we can collaborate and we can connect. And really often our lessons will be so much deeper when we do that. It reminds me of a time when I was going out with my son. He was about six or seven and we lived in Minnesota where it was very cold. I think we were going to the park and Mm. I said, please go get your coat. And he said, mom, I don't need a coat. And, you know, it's one of these moments where you think, well, I know better. I'm the parent. And and of course, I could have just been like, you must get your coat or we will not go. But instead, I thought, you know, let's approach this a different way. And so I said, you know, I'm going to just bring your coat and put it in the bottom of the stroller and your mittens and your hat. So if you decide you need them, we have them. But as we walked, I talked to him about science and about water freezing and I was asking him, do you think it would be easier for an ocean to freeze or a little shallow pond? Mm. And he was saying, a shallow pond. And, you know, I'm kind of taking him with me through this intellectual exercise. And I said, which do you think your fingertips and ears are more like, the ocean or the shallow pond? Ah. And, And then he was saying, the pond. And then within a few moments, he had reached for his coat and his hat and his mittens. (laughs) And then we continued on our way. But having a collaborative approach, just it's number one, so much more delightful, but it really allows the the lessons to sink in like you illustrated so well. And what happens is it goes from the inside out then, right? Yes. It's a a kid making a realization and a choice for themselves. Yes. And, uh, and this is where so much of the sustainability of these kind of lessons comes in, because that's the thing that for me, that when my kid was young, my kid's 25 and a half mm-hmm. and uh, more than a half now, I think she's going to be uh, 26 in May. Wow. And so we've been on this journey a long time. And I knew from the early, early days that I didn't want surface level relationship with my kid. And I didn't want to surface level lessons with my kid, you know, because mm-hmm. I know how those backfire. I know they're not sustainable. Mm-hmm. They don't have a strong enough foundation to last through all the challenges of life, you know? Yeah. And uh, when we constantly hear folks, when they put down conscious parenting or gentle parenting, when they put it down, they say it's not preparing kids for the real world. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I think, well, that, that's a person who's not really thinking about what it takes to really navigate the real world. You know, right. when I say real world, I mean a world where there's violence and where there's people trying to take advantage of you and where there's rules and where there's structures and where there's consequences and where there's danger and where you have to interact with a whole different, like all sorts of multitudes of different kinds of people and different mindsets. And like, how it's such, it's it's a complex thing to go out into the world and deal with it. Mm -hmm. So I always used to think what the most powerful attributes that I could inspire and nurture with my child so that she, they would have the strongest capacity out in the world. And it wasn't mm-hmm. never things like obedience, you know, and external shows of respect and things like mm-hmm. that. It was more things like being able to think through a situation, being able to listen to your intuition, to know your own values, you know, and to be able to, uh, to believe in them and to want to live up to the, your own values. And I mean, I know when I fall short of my own values, because I've taken some years to rewire my own values to make sure they're mine, right? I say, mm-hmm. are, I always say, are, are your values chose or are they imposed? 
Mm. I like it when wisdom, wisdom rhymes, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I've, I've spent years and years transitioning from more imposed to more chose. And I say more because still, I'm still on that journey, you know. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want my kid to be saddled with all this imposed stuff and then have to spend their 20s and 30s and 40s figuring out what they are, who they are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, I thought, let's, let's do this in the deepest way possible. What, what does create courage? What does create deep thinking? How can we teach kids to navigate a world of challenge and consequences? What's going to bring real strength and real empowerment? And I worked on those things, you know, which, yeah. which made it seem like, I, like, especially 25 years ago, now there's a lot more awareness of, thanks to people like you, there's a lot more awareness of gentle parenting in the world, mm-hmm. compassion parenting in the world. Mm-hmm. But back then, really, no. no. And uh, so really, it seemed like we were doing some pretty weird stuff in those days. Right. And, and I think what you're saying, too, is just this idea that the biggest gift we can give is connection and have mm. them have a safe space with us, you know. And I think that that is that connection is what it gets disrupted when we start using things like coercion and force. I do want to go back to the idea of quote unquote, preparing for the real world. And it makes me think of a scenario sometimes I encounter in my office where a parent brings in a child who is very dysregulated, really has a hard time following direction and is getting in trouble a lot. And sometimes I see this child, you know, really getting into the space, for example, of that parent, you know, maybe pulling on their face, pulling Mm. their hair, digging in their purse. And And so sometimes I do say to them, you know, you feel that you're being very patient and kind. However, will other people allow this? And to that degree, you know, I think there is something to think about, but it's not because we're trying to falsely create the real world in our homes. It's because we are not honoring our authentic boundaries in our homes. And the truth is that people do have some boundaries regarding their own space, their own possessions, their own self. And, you know, if we even think about that, we own anything really, but, but what I, I do sometimes try to give parents permission to do is to set authentic boundaries because it doesn't do anyone any favors to just sit and endure somebody doing multiple boundary crossings when we're trying to teach a sense of respect. So Tell me how that translates in your world, because I do, you know, and I'll get into this in a little bit, but there is, you know, a sense of order that sometimes we need. There's a sense of efficiency or moving forward that sometimes we need. There are these ideas of safety. And so I'm curious the interplay between not offering consequences, you know, imposing consequences while yet maintaining certain very important boundaries that maintain some of these other qualities that I mentioned. For sure. I think I agree with you that personal boundaries are super important. One of my sayings is, I didn't want to teach my kid to respect boundaries. I wanted to teach my kid to want to respect boundaries. Mm, Yes. And they're very different approaches. Right. Because teaching a kid to respect boundaries is a behavior. Teaching Mm. kids to want to respect boundaries is a value. It's a relationship. It's a personal priority. And if a kid can learn from their own personal priority, that it makes sense to them to respect other people's boundaries, that it uplifts them and it makes them more authentic to themselves, 
more mm-hmm. loving, more caring in their relationships, more authentic in their relationships, more connected in their relationships, that they get more out of their lives by respecting boundaries, then they're going to be looking for how to respect boundaries in their family community. Yes. But if we tell kids you should respect boundaries and they feel that that's coming from an authoritative power over hierarchical person that's telling Mm -hmm. them what to do, and it goes against their natural inclination, they're going to resist it. Even if they do the behavior in front of you, inside they're going to be looking for ways to get that need met, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is what I like. I was when 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 my kid was young and also when I'm working with any kids, my goal is always that inside out approach. And part of it is because I'm just like, I'm so convinced in my own experience that how effective that is compared to the other, that I just can't bring myself to do the other unless I'm dysregulated, which happens all the time. But that's, not, <laughs> but, that, but that's different, right? That's me being out of alignment. And then I apologize and I do repair and I go back into alignment. That's different than thinking that that's the way to, to do it. It's just that I'm, I'm off sometimes. And we all do that. That's natural. That's part of life. I'm glad that you acknowledge that because I think that that's one hang up that a lot of parents feel is like, is this sustainable? Can I actually do this? You know, not trusting themselves because they feel like if they're going to be trying to have this compassionate, conscious, gentle approach that they don't know if they can actually do it 100% of the time. But that's not a reason not to try. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. It's a huge undertaking to parent peacefully in a world that doesn't support it with you know, like I always say, with 10,000 years of coercive history and hierarchical power structures and power over dominating cultures and in our own families, but also in the larger culture, it's hard to rewire that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's deep inside of us. We often think that the only two options are, I, like, like you had mentioned this too, like the only two options are either let the boundary crossings happen or, you know, set a, a hard boundary. No, this is not uh, appropriate and other people might be upset by this. And And that kind of thing. But that doesn't get to that attitude, right? doesn't get to the value. So the question for me always is, how do you get to the the deeper value underneath at the same time as helping keep people safe, of course? Mm. Because we do want to respect each other's boundaries, especially if you have multiple people in the house, you want to to help them have their boundaries respected, right? Right. And and as a mom of eight boys, you know, you can imagine that, that my home became more like a mini society than, yeah. you know, a one-on-one relationship. And so, you know, that's something that, that I ask, you know, where is this, where does the, the interplay between maintaining the efficiency of a household, the order, the safety, you know, even just the emotional safety in a place where are trying to not impose consequences? Because I admit, I use consequences. Yeah. It imposed consequences at times. And at times they have seemed to outwardly at least bring a degree of greater order, greater efficiency. And I don't know, maybe when you have a large family, maybe it it crosses into more of a society, <laughs> you know, yeah. where, where there does need to be a law, there no, does need to be something that upholds the boundary. Whereas if you're talking about one-on-one, maybe it is a little different. I don't know. So I think, you know, when we, we think about society and comparing it to our family, one of my other sayings is create your family to reflect the society that you want to create. Mm. And, you know, I want a society where everybody cooperates and collaborates because we all recognize that's what's in the best interests of all the other members of society, including ourselves. Yeah. I want to create a mindset in not only in my family, but in the world. And, if, you know, if you read my stuff, this is what I'm all about. 
it's not just my family and in our families, but like all of us working together. Yes. Can we create, can we work towards creating a world where we're so nourished from day one in the sense of caring about each other and com- mm-hmm. being compassionate towards each other and how each other's needs, you know, caring about each other's needs is caring about our own needs. It's not a sacrifice, you mm-hmm. know, and if we can really nurture those ideas in society, we'll have a whole heck of a lot less need for punishments and rules and jails. Right. And I'm, I'm speaking from a perspective of someone who has done a decade of self-empowerment workshops in prisons. Yes. With my mother, who is an amazing being, Shivani Patel, has, it's really her show and I'm her assistant and I'm, mm. I'm the chauffeur and I go in there and I share my life story with the guys because in my mid to late teens and early 20s, my life was full of a lot of crime and violence and hanging around with a lot of bad people and I hurt a lot of people and stole a lot of stuff and it was just a whole it was a whole mess let me tell you the fact that I'm alive and not in prison myself is just by grace you know Mm. and then I had an epiphany in my 20s and things start to change for me which fortunately happened before I had you know the little one came along Mm. and I turned I turned all of that rebellious energy against the coercive parenting paradigm and was able to you know do some pretty radical stuff in those days but but my whole my whole thinking was in those like I was controlled so much that I wanted to find any way to break the rules because it made me feel a sense of validity of my for myself it made yes. me feel a sense of, of power in myself you know and to me that makes me feel like <clears throat> everything you say has much more depth because you understand being that teenager being mm. that child who is being coerced or being in a system, even just our societal system, yeah. that you were kind of, it was not working for you. And so, you know, these situations where we as parents feel like, you know, they're complex, like we're trying to protect a teenager, we're trying to set some boundaries and have consequences to protect a teenager yeah. from some pretty difficult things, or we see them going down a road that is very damaging. Yeah. You know, so just, I'd love to hear how you apply these conscious and gentle principles in those states where repair work is needed. There's so many teenagers who are just wed to their phone, for example, and some parents just see the damaging effects, but maybe their first impulse is to start taking things away. I'm taking the Xbox, I'm taking the phone, I'm taking your phone plan. You may not leave the house for a month, you know, (laughs) and but yet this doesn't seem to get at the core need. And I think some of these approaches, they are the long game. They're not things that immediately, you know, come to an immediate solution, but it's a deeper solution that is sustaining. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I speak out a lot about is limits, Mm. because limits are a very common thing in the parenting world. And limits are an important thing for us as humans to explore and understand and have a good facility with. I know the things that I have learned to create healthy limits around in my own life gives me so much more empowerment, you know? And the things I haven't, they tend to drag me down. They tend to take my time and my energy in unhealthy ways. Well, I think limits are really powerful and important for us to work with, uh, with, each, with ourselves and with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm not a fan of are non-consensual coercive limits that are imposed mm-hmm. by an authority and held in place with power and violence. Mm-hmm. Because the only way to enforce a, a non-consensual limit is with power and violence. Mm-hmm. The violence may not be acted, but it's always implied. 
Mm. And by that, I mean, if your kid has an iPad, but you don't want them to play on it anymore. Yes. And you set a limit and you enforce the limit. The only thing you can do is take it out of their hands if mm. they say no mm. or or shut off the Internet. But I mean, these are, you know, or I don't know, like you can't take the battery out of these things anymore. But, like, you know, like, <laughs> like it has, if they say, if they just say no, the only recourse that you have at that point is power and violence. Hmm. It might be emotional violence. It might be relational violence. It might be environmental. It might be access to resources because hmm. we have a lot of different aspects of power. We have there's a lot of different aspects to the power we have as parents. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I want my relationship to be genuinely nonviolent with my kid, then I have to set up the structures and systems that don't rely on violence in order to uphold them. Mm. This I start. I try and start from these more fundamental mindsets, you know, and then work from there. But if I combine that with me saying I actually do agree with the importance of limits, then all of a sudden I'm like, well, if I agree with limits, but I don't want to do with the violence, what's left? And that's something new, mm-hmm. right? We In the past, we would only think, well, either you have to coercively set the limit or you do nothing. I hear that false dichotomy all the time. Yes. Right. But there's always a third option. I call it the yeah. third option. I mean, there's an infinite number of other options, but I call it the third option. I always say there's a third option. Yeah. And that third option might require more time. It might require more, will require more creative problem solving. It'll require a lot of rewiring of our own neural pathways, you know, from the old ways of doing things. So there's something called a, that, that I call a collaborative limit, which is different than a coercive limit. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And a collaborative limit is done where everybody gets together and we share our needs and we share our not only needs, but our wants and our preferences and our feelings and our opinions and like all the subtle stuff as well. Like we share all that stuff. And and then we talk. And, and so the parent gets to share theirs. The kid gets to share theirs. So the kid might say, I love playing Minecraft and I love and it makes me so happy and I get really enjoy it. The parent says, yeah, and I love that you play Minecraft and I love that you love it. And I also you know, I like, I really care about your brain and I really care about the health of your brain. You know, what I told my kid when she was young, I told her, you know, kiddo, just like we care about the food we put into our bodies, because it, you know, it goes into, it turns into the cells and it turns into the bones and it turns into the muscles. And again, I would say, and that's what we used to play. And that's what we used to have fun. And your eyes are what you used to read and your teeth are what you used to chew things. And like, like, there's so much amazing things we can do with this thing called the body. Uh And we really want to take care of it together. How can you help me take care of mine? And how can I help you take care of yours? It's collaborative. Mm. It's not one way, right? Yes. Everything was mutual with my kid. I've always made sure she felt it was mutual so that there was like a joint care and a joint responsibility we had for each other. Mm-hmm. From the Before she could talk, I was talking this way to her so that it was the way that we were interacting, right? And that's so beautiful. And thank you. And then I would say, you know, just like the body, the mind also, what we put in the mind, it also affects how it grows and the health and the happiness that we have. You know, sometimes you're happier and sometimes you're more stressed and sometimes you feel like this really joy and sometimes things are really hard. I didn't do this in a way that made it seem like feeling sad was bad, but I meant because all mm-hmm. emotions are acceptable. Right. But generally, talking about it, generally how the things affect the mind. So I would say, you know, kiddo, I would really appreciate it if certain shows and certain things that are on TV or the internet that you trust my guidance and don't watch because it actually will cause some bad things to happen in your brain. And I would love it if you would trust me on that guidance because I only have your best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. And because our relationship had developed to the point where she actually could rely on that because she knew even when she did things that were completely out of alignment 
my response to it is always, let's learn from this together. This is a wonderful mm-hmm. opportunity for us to learn together, you know, together, because I make the same damn mistake. So right. let's, let's, let's learn about it together. I call myself a mistake making machine specifically so I can remember, like you have no authority to punish this person in any way, shape or form for making a mistake because you're about to make the same mistake in the next five minutes. So let's, let's get real here, right? <laughs> let's learn. A, but I can also learn, like I actually learn in that moment. It's different than being the parent and making the kid learn. If my kid like hits another kid, I'll actually learn from that. I'll say, oh yeah, I also feel dysregulated and lash out sometimes. Thank you so much for that experience because it really taught me about myself too. What can we do together to learn from this moment? So Mm -hmm. wonderful that you, it's amazing how the emotions work, isn't it kiddo? It's amazing how the mind works. And then what I add to the TV thing was I add, and if I ever suggest a show that you, that I think you shouldn't watch, but for some reason you do want to watch it, we can talk about that. I'll never say a hard no. Maybe all the kids at school are watching it. Maybe it'll scare you for a few days and we can deal with that together because you want the benefit of being able to talk to other kids on the playground about it. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much complexity to something like that. Mm-hmm. Let's always be in conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this, the movie Kill Bill, it has this one sexual assault scene that I did not want her to see when she was, you know? Right. And so I said that to her. I said, there's a scene in here that has something I really don't, because we're martial artists in our family. Mm. I'm, I've been a martial artist for 35 years. And I brought up my kid like a ninja right from the beginning. So everything martial arts we would watch, right? So much fun. And uh, But this movie is all martial arts, so exciting. But I asked her if she would be willing to either skip that part or not watch the movie. And she said, okay. And to this day, she's 25. She still hasn't watched the movie. Mm. And we constantly make a joke about the fact that we're going to watch it together now that she's older. And we still haven't quite got around to it. But we're saving it, the special thing that we're going to watch Kill Bill together one day. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing, the reason I mentioned that is me saying kind of saying no to her about that movie became a thing of that was joyous Mm. and connecting. It wasn't, didn't feel like an imposition that she had to resist. Mm. And this is the thing for me, you know, if we're going to replace the old style of parenting, we need to replace it with something effective. For me, when I'm working with limits with my kid, I love to have that collaborative discussion with them. I love to talk about my needs and my feelings and my, what I care about helping, keeping, keeping them safe and keeping them well. And then I want to hear from them And then we discuss, well, what can we do? How can we do this? How can it work? And usually the first solutions that everybody comes up with, we try it. It doesn't really work because you're just imagining it. And then people say, see, it didn't work. No, that's just the first iteration. Let's get back to the drawing table and say, okay, this part didn't work when you did it. And this part of what I did didn't work. But this part did, which was really wonderful. How can we adjust? And you just put that on repeat forever, basically. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's constant conversation, constant creative problem solving, constant working together to get everyone's needs met. And to do it in a way that feels empowering so everybody wants to engage in this. Mm-hmm. And, and I will say that as a parent, I have given some hard no's. And some of that has gone well for me. And some of my hard no's have been blown through. And I wonder if, if it would have been different if, if I had started with a different approach. But I really value what you're sharing here. And the whole, even just the collaborative nature of it is just completely flip from what so many of us operate from. And it's so valuable. And when you were talking about like having a narrative with your daughter from the beginning, I also have done that with my children. Like I'm talking Mm. to them as I'm, you know, changing their diaper and they're flailing. And I'm, I'm saying, I know you don't want me to change your diaper right now, but we need to keep you clean. And, you know, I'm just talking to them the whole time and, and then bringing playfulness in it. Like I remember one day when when my kids was in the stage of fighting diaper changes, just finding this really silly lumberjack hat to put on. And I just like slipped it in the diaper changing table and 
you know, pulled it out and put it on. And my son stopped flailing and just like stared at me very curiously. And, you know, <laughs> it was just this playful way to kind of interrupt things a little bit. And, yeah. but I love, I love this collaborative approach. Now, I would love to hear a little more in depth about, you know, maybe the different pillars of this idea. So I call the parenting style that I teach, I call it non-coercive collaborative parenting. Mm-hmm. And I say that the non-coercive is what we don't do, and the collaborative is what we do do. I call it mm-hmm. the don't do and the do do. <laughs> and I really like always thinking of the don't do and the do do, you know, because one without the other is not quite enough. If you start to collaborate with your kids and have meetings with them and empathizing with their feelings, that's the do do, but you're still punishing them and consequencing and taking things away, that's going to be much less effective. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to be like, okay, well, when is that parent going to come? And when is the other parent going to come? Going to mm-hmm. show up, right? But if you're doing the non-coercive and you're not doing the punishing and you're not doing consequences, you're not doing that stuff, but you're also not engaging in active collaboration and active guidance and active exploration of values and community and communication and boundaries and limits and how the body works and how the mind works and how community works, you know, like all the seven, how the different systems work. How does the school system work? How does the monetary system work? How does the corporate system work? How does the legal system work? Like we were always looking at the different systems and how they work so that like this is how you prepare a kid for the real world is you actually teach them about the real world. You don't have to. uh, One of my sayings is you can teach kids about oppressive systems without replicating them in your home. Mm. Yes, (laughs) I love that. Yeah. (laughs) And very much the mainstream parenting paradigm that's been handed down to us for many, many generations understandably, is based on the oppressive power structures of society, because that's what we were modeling. That's the only model that we had, really. I mean, there are some models that are different than that, you know, but with the internet and, you know, big Facebook groups and stuff, like it's, there's more and more people these days that are respecting kids than ever before, mm-hmm. at least in my memory of my life and my parents and parents, parents and parents, 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 you know, <laughs> I was just telling my wife yesterday how gratified I am these days to see comment sections have have, have improved so much over the years. It used to be Mm -hmm. all control kids, give them a whooping, they need to be controlled. And now half the comments are like, no, you have to respect kids. And if you treat them like humans, they'll treat you like humans. I'm like, but where is this coming from? But (laughs) I'm so happy to see more and more of that awareness in the world. You know, it like honestly, it lights, it shoots a light up inside of me. So yes, me too. Yeah, And I really think that in order to make this stuff sustainable, part of what we have to do is create a new model that is actually going to be workable for parents. Because mm-hmm. if we take something away, but don't replace it with something else, it's, it's really challenging, you know. And so the, the non-coercive collaborative parenting, non-coercive means we don't coerce, we don't use power, we don't use violence. And when I say power, like I said before, it's not just physical power. But it's also emotional, relational, environmental, and access to resources, which kids mm-hmm. have no power over those things. You know, mm-hmm. I always say, even a 14-year-old gets their own job and buys their own tablet, we can take it away and there's nothing they can do. Mm. We have so much inherent. This is what systemic power is, right? Systemic power is power you didn't choose and power you can't refuse. Mm. Another Vivek rhyming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, systemic power is not personal. It's just, it's wired into the relationship, right? But what is personal is how we choose to relate to that power. Mm. I always knew I had that power over my child. I chose to relate to it in a way that made me the safest guide for her. So here's the thing. The three relationships that I replaced the old relationship with are the relationship of model, guide, and friend. Mm. Often, 
in the early days of my rebellious parenting, I would I used to call it friendship-based anti-parenting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be my kid's friend no matter what. But I realized as things were going along that I was more than just a friend. I was also mm. a model and I was also a guide. Yes. And it's that more complete, and you know, I mean, I'm always learning and evolving myself. It's that more complete structure that allows us to have real deep influence with our kids, allows us to have it that when they make a mistake, they turn towards us instead of away from us. Yes. When, when my kid makes a mistake, she is so excited to come to me. Can you imagine? <laughs> She's all, and it's always been that way. It's not like she, she comes to me and like, you know, maybe it's going to be okay. She's excited to come to me. Wow. She knows that we're going to learn from it together. She knows she can, I'm going to see her humanity. I'm going to share my humanity and I'm not going to impose anything on her. Like when she was like six years old, she stole $20 from her uncle when we were visiting there. Mm. And uh, when we got home, she came over to me and we were sitting on the couch right over there. She was sitting on that couch right there. And uh, we've had these couches a long time. And she sat with me and she said, dad, I have to tell you something. I said, what? She goes, I stole $20 from uncle. Mm. Now, of course... I'm like, okay, what do you do, Vivek, in this moment? You know, first of all, I knew that I stole all throughout my teen years. Mm. And when I was her age, I stole something from the farm. I stole some makeup for my sister at the farm. My sister was like, Vivek, will you steal that for me? And I was like, sure. And as soon as we got home, she told on me. (laughs) 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 And my parents made me go back to the pharmacy. They didn't yell at me, but they made me go back to the pharmacy. They made me apologize. They made me return it. They made me offer to pay. Probably I had to work to pay it off, whatever it was. And all that made me do was get better at not getting caught. Mm. So I was like, I'm not doing that with my kid. So my first question was, how do you feel about that kid? Mm. Now, note the tone in my voice was very neutral when I said, I didn't say, well, how do you feel about that? I wasn't like that because then I'm already telling her how I think she should feel just from the tone, right? Yes. But it was really, really neutral. Now, I'll tell you, the amount of inner work I had to do in the two seconds before I responded. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I had to control so many thoughts and so many feelings and so many judgments and so much fear. But again, I know how things go. I know that if I approach with any judgment, I'm not going to be able to be as deep a guide. Mm. I'm not going to be trustable. She's going to turn away. And I want her to be able to really look at this thing with me. So mm-hmm. that she knows what it means to her. So I was like, oh, how do you feel about that kid? And she was like, well, and then she was like, actually able to think about how she felt like it because of the openness of that question. Yeah. She didn't feel like she had to answer a particular way to receive my acceptance. Mm-hmm. So what I was doing in that moment was I was teaching her to genuinely tune into her own conscience, her own ethical sense, her own deep wisdom. Some people might say that that's my connection to my subconscious. Some people might say that's my ethical sense. Some people might say the universe is guiding me. Some people might say I'm listening to God's wisdom inside me. Like There's so many different ways we can term that. Mm-hmm. But all of us have this deep wisdom inside us, this yes. deep connection to something, right? And so I helped her tune into her own deep wisdom rather than trying to impose mine on her. And she said, it doesn't really feel good. Mm. And I said, okay, so let's think about what to do about that. Actually, first I said, no, I can understand that kid. First empathy, right? First mm-hmm. I was like, I can really understand that. And I said, you know, I stole things before too. You stole things? Ah, I did too. And sometimes I was doing it just to express, you know, some, some fears or some emotional thing that I was going through. And sometimes I did it and I felt really bad about it. She said, yeah, I feel kind of bad about it. So then we collaborated on a, on a response. I said, well, let's think about the different things we can do and what, what will make you feel good. And I went through a whole range of responses. 
I said, we could go back to uncle and we could apologize and we could tell him what happened. He's not going to care. He loves you. He's cool. He's probably stolen more than you and I put together. So he'll be all right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and I said, or we can give it to him on his next birthday. We'll put it in a card and say, hey, here's $20 for you. And technically we're returning it, but he doesn't know. And I said, or we can go over to his place and I could distract him and you could put it back in the bowl that you took it from. And we came up with like 10 different things and she came up with things. And some of them were absolutely ridiculous and impossible and some of them were fun and some of them uh -huh. were serious. And, but we came up with different solutions. And I said, why don't you take all of that and just feel inside? What do you feel like would be the best thing for you? Would hmm. feel the most right for you with your relationship with yourself, with your relationship with your uncle, with you know the kind of person you want to be. And she decided that we would go over there and I would distract uncle and she would put it back in the thing because she never really wanted to do it. She doesn't really want to do that, but she doesn't really feel comfortable facing him, but she feels safe with me to, to be able to share that. So maybe we could do with that. So we went over to uncle's and I said, oh, by the way, can I show you something on your computer? I just wanted to check something. So we went to the back and went to the computer. She sucked in the bowl. I came out, she gave me a wink and we left. The feeling between us as we walked home, Mary, from, from that thing, this, the trust that was between us, the joy that was between us, the feeling of, yes, we were celebrating. Yes, I discovered a value and I lived up to my value of not wanting to steal. And I don't know, the, just the deep cementing of the guide relationship there mm -hmm. was so profound that she, after that, she would start to come to me with all sorts of things. Like, I have so many stories. Yes. And, uh, but this is the thing. So for guide, this is the guide of model guide friend. So mm -hmm. the guide aspect, one of the things for me that's been so important is how do we be the safest possible guide? And what are all the things that might make us a less safe guide? So I'm thinking the don't do and the do do here as well, right? Yes. Well, what are the things that I don't do to be safe, to be connected, right? To be mm -hmm. a safe guide. And what are the things that I do do? So the don't do, you know, for me is anything that's going to make the kid want to turn away mm -hmm. and make the kid not trust, make the kid not believe in my good intentions, which is why I'm so adamant about punishment and consequences and coercion as much mm -hmm. as possible. Because every single time we do that to anybody, to any human, every single time somebody coerces me, I put up a little barrier. Okay, the next time I talk to this person, I have to keep a little eye out because I remember how they treated me last time, right? Mm -hmm. Every single time. And even when I call, even when I call the cable company, you know, <laughs> like if there's certain companies that consistently have better customer service than others, and I'm so much more relaxed calling those companies than the other companies. I mean, it just, it's in every part of our lives, we experience this kind of thing. Yes. You know, like, if I go get a, a coffee at the same place and they all know me, you know, it's a nice feeling. Like the relationship, mm -hmm. human relationships have such a profound effect on our experience. Mm -hmm. So I want to be that the trustable guy. So I have to think, what are all the things I have to stop doing? And then the things that I do do are like that, like exploring the world and exploring values. And everything is an opportunity to explore, you know. And then, okay, so that's guide. So guide is like a huge thing. How can we be a trustable guide and how can we stop being less trustable? Mm -hmm. And maybe somebody is, that's listening to this has been giving consequences all this time. And it's like, well, how do I stop? Well, the thing about the don't do is you just don't do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the next time you, a thing comes up and you're like, this is a good moment for a consequence. Say, I'm going to do a don't do. Let's think about what another do do is, mm -hmm. you know, and then focus on. So here's the thing. How can I do some deeper listening is one mm -hmm. of the things, mm -hmm. right? Listening with curiosity, genuine curiosity. Yeah. A lot of the time parents listen with an agenda. Yes is very, very different. And kids can feel any, again, all of us can feel that, you know, mm -hmm. but can you listen with the agenda of deep understanding of being a space for offloading of deep emotions and feelings, you know, because when we start to work that way, we create an open channel to the kids 
mind and heart. Mm-hmm. And that open channel gives us so much influence, you know? Yeah. And then you'll end up with kids that seek your guidance rather than resist it. That's beautiful. Yeah. The other two relationships are model and friend. Mm-hmm. So the model is how I'm living my life greatly informs my kid about reality, about relationships, about communication, about the ethical use of power. Because like I said, we have power and they're watching how we use it. Mm-hmm. So they're learning about the ethical use of power by how we use it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't pretend not to be a leader in my relationship with my kid. Right. I just want to be a safe, trustable, ethical leader. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> if I was being like, I've had lots of teachers in my lifetime because I'm a dancer and I'm a martial artist. Mm-hmm. So I've, and I've had the good fortune of training with some of the world's best dancers and some of the world's best martial artists. And separate from that, some of the world's best teachers. Because mm-hmm. the best martial artists aren't always the best martial art teachers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's a separate skill unto itself. One of the martial arts teachers that I had was like really hard, old school guy who would yell and scream and everything. And I learned a lot from this person, mm-hmm. but never really was able to open my heart and trust them. So anytime they would, they would say anything that wasn't about the physical, spiritual, because martial arts is very spiritual too. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, whatever, buddy. You know, yes. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I, I can't trust you on that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, even if I agreed with him, I'd still be going, whatever, buddy. And, uh, <laughs> and so, but I wanted to be that trustable, safe teacher where I didn't feel, because when I, when I have a teacher that I can trust, I like, show me everything. Tell me what, I'll even say, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I want to know. It's not, right. it doesn't feel bad. It doesn't feel bad to receive a correction from someone that you really deeply trust. Yes. It's actually empowering and uplifting because I know now I can take that. And it'll make my life better. My kid always does that. When I give her a suggestion or I give her feedback on something, she'll come to me like two weeks later and said, okay, I've been thinking about what you were said. <laughs> you know, and, and even now she'll tell me, dad, you told me this when I was 13 and I thought about it for, for a long time and it made it part of my thing, but I added this to it and I took that away from it and I changed it this way. And I'm like, I'm so love that kiddo, you know? Yes. I think there is that deep accountability and we gain, we become qualified to guide when we model. Mm, Yes, absolutely. Thank you for saying. Mm -hmm. And the different areas we model, we model how we treat our kid, every interaction. We model how we treat other people and the environment and other systems, Mm -hmm. like I mentioned Mm -hmm. before. And we're modeling how we treat ourselves. Yes. And that's a big one, you know? That's a huge one. Yeah. Even in the in the orientation toward mistakes, because Mm. listening to this podcast, people might be thinking, oh, I've made so many mistakes. I've I've done so many things wrong. And, but if we just drown in that, then we're losing the opportunity to model what it's like to pick up and shift Ah. and turn around and digest a new truth. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of my sayings is radical self-compassion empowers us to shift old patterns and create new. Yes. And uh, compassion is, is where it's at to be compassionate with ourselves yeah. As we recognize potential missteps from the past and compassionate with our kids as we, you know, embark on this journey together. Yeah. For so sure. the third thing is the friendship. So tell me a little right. bit about that. Yes. Thank you. The friendship. I love that one because, like I said originally, that was all I was thinking about, right? And the others yeah. kind of evolved as it went along. So friendship for me is the deep human relationship. Mm-hmm. That's what it really is. A lot of people, when they say you, sh- you can't be your kid's friend, they have what I would call a pretty poor definition of friendship. Yes. Because my deep friends, and there's only a few, maybe two or three, right? The ones that are really, really deep inside my heart, the ones that know me, they know 
my good and bad sides, my dark and light, and they still love me. Mm-hmm. They know me for all my mistakes and all my floundering, you know? And uh, I call this parenting uh, journey, uh, I also call it stumbling with purpose. <laughs> that's quite a, sort of like what walking is. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We're stumbling with purpose. That's exactly it. But it's the purpose. We're all stumbling. But if you're stumbling with purpose, at least you're going to continuously be evolving in that direction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So the definition of a friendship is that deep human relationship and recognizing that we're stumbling with purpose together side by side. Mm. It's the part of me that allows me to offer empathy. You know, like when I had like my close friends, like I was mentioning, we, we support each other. We offer suggestions to each other. We explore values with each other. If one of us is out of alignment, the other will say, hey, this doesn't sound like you. What's going on? Can I be there for you? And, you know, and we play together and we learn together and we hold each other accountable, but we do it in a way that there's no judgment or wrongness. It's more about, like one of my old sayings is a true teacher introduces the student to themselves. Mm-hmm. And perhaps a true friend does the same thing. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And so when you take all three of those, the deep human relationship, powerful respect, respect for autonomy and consent, but also engaging in joy and fun and learning together. And then you take the modeling relationship where you're really conscious of, are you modeling your values? You know, are you modeling the way that you want your kid to interact with other people? Mm-hmm. Which is really hard. We have to change so much when we start thinking that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you take the guide relationship. So the two parts of the guide relationship are making yourself a trustable guide, but also making sure that what your information you're using to guide your kids is accurate, right? Mm-hmm. Are you still coming from old things that just don't work, you know, based on the old ways? And then you combine those three and it just creates such a deep, comprehensive relationship. And it's sustainable because it lasts a long time. It's resilient because it includes mistakes. And for all of us, how can we navigate them together so it, they bring us closer and we learn from them? And then you end up with a lifelong relationship with this human being. And what mm-hmm. could be more beautiful and profound than that, honestly? Yes. Yeah. Well, just before we close, I'm going to ask one more question about the idea of, you know, in terms of modeling and self-regulation and doing that inner work. Do you have any guidance for our listeners about how that process proceeds, how even it begins to do inner work to become, to have that accountability for our own self-regulation as we interact with our kids? For sure. I will start with a plug. I would recommend following my social media because I write a lot about that. And I've made a lot of videos about that. My social media is all Meaningful Ideas, Meaningful Ideas on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and also MeaningfulIdeas.com. And on YouTube, one of the more recent videos, there's a Conscious Parenting playlist there on my YouTube channel. Mm. And one of the recent videos is called Processing Challenging Emotions in the Midst of Every, the Hubbub of Everyday Life or something like that. And it was a two and a half hour workshop that I gave for the, the No Spank Challenge that happened last year that was put on by stopspanking.org. And I did a two-hour workshop and it was free. And so I just put it up on my YouTube channel. Wonderful. There are, yeah, there's so much information in that workshop. And I would recommend having a, taking notes while, while you listen to it because there's so many different strategies and ways of working with our emotions. Because a lot of time we, people don't have the time and space or even energy to do deep emotional work on a regular basis or go to mm-hmm. therapy twice a week or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So this is really about doing that in ways that integrate into our lives. Because so much of the work that we need to do as parents is really on our own reactions, on our own self-regulation, and our own feelings. And a lot of the time, we are tempted to feel like we should repress those things. 
The repression of our own stuff only makes it go inside and leak out in unhealthy ways. So what I talk about something called no repression, no projection. Mm. More rhyming. No repression is where I really value my feelings. I feel them. I feel all of them. I allow them space inside of me. I empathize with them. I give myself compassion for them. The no projection part is I feel them in a way that doesn't harm the other person. Mm. That I'm not projecting, especially to my kid, but also my partner. You know, like the more mm. I've gotten better at no projection, the better our relationship is. You know, we just had our 29th wedding anniversary recently. That's and funny. honestly, yeah. And honestly, our relationship is probably the best it's ever been at this point because we've both been continuously doing this work. A lot of it, we've been doing the work because of the kiddo, right? But this is the positive leaking, right? Positive leaking happens too. <laughs> yeah. and, and the positive leaking into our relationship has been a big deal. And so we don't want to project those things onto our kids. We want to, that's what taking responsibility for our feelings is. Now, there's, there are times to repress. I call it intelligent repression. There are times to repress in the moment, clamp down on that thing and deal with it later so that you can wait. Yes. Oh, my darling, what's going on? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and then and then later you can like write in your journal, that kid was making me, man, lose my mind. And I just wanted to throw them off the balcony. I'm so upset, you know? Right. And I had this, this ritual I would do for a while is I would write like really, really let all of my feelings out and hold nothing back. And then I would rip it up and burn it. Mm. And my kid would actually come onto the balcony with me and we would, uh, and we would burn these things together. And I would talk about why I was doing it. I remember one time I, I had this like memory come back to me about when I had done something that I really regretted in my parenting. So I have lots of, lots of things that I hold that I regret. And I share that because it's just a human thing, you know, right. for all, all the radical stuff I did, I regret a lot, <laughs> but I also, I also have compassion for it. They coexist. I also have compassion because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I right. was driven to continuously learn and improve, still am. Mm-hmm. So I accept myself for that. And I also feel regret for some of those things. So I wrote that stuff out and I wrote my, my regrets out. And I said to her, hey, kiddo, you want to come on the balcony with me? And I'm going to do another burning. And this one was really some stuff I had regrets about my parenting that, from before and some mistakes that I made. Because I've always been open about me also being on a learning journey and making mistakes and learning. Mm-hmm. And I said, maybe it'll be a good release for you too from some of those mistakes. She said, you know, dad, I'm happy to come on the balcony to support you releasing you from your mistakes, but I'm not holding anything from you making mistakes because I know mm. how hard you try. And uh, so this beautiful. is only like, this was like when she was 20 when this happened. You know? mm. And uh, it was really beautiful to hear that, to hear that reflection. So, but I want to share three from that processing challenging emotions uh, video. I want to share three practices that I teach that are so helpful for the parents that, that employ them, that use them on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I have a, a series of micro practices that I've, mm. that I've created. And another workshop that I have is actually all about the micro practices. And it's also two hours of micro practices. But the three, <laughs> but the three main ones are like the foundational ones are the micro meditation, the micro self compassion, and the micro self observation. Mm. And I'll just briefly touch on each one of those. So the micro meditation is a one breath meditation. Wow. Yeah. In the old days, I used to call it, because I, I say old days, I've been doing this a long time. They used to call it the 30-second toilet meditation. Because <laughs> I would tell people, when you go to the toilet, you've got a little time to yourself anyways, at least once a day. I mean, if you're a new parent, maybe not. Maybe the kids are all over you. But, gener- <laughs> but generally, so you can go to the toilet, and then I say, you're already kind of on a meditation throne, and you can meditate <laughs> there. But right. then I realized, even honestly, even that doesn't happen for people, and 30 seconds is a long time. And it used to be three breaths, and I changed it to one breath. 
Wow. And it's so much more accessible now. And I also have a, a two-minute micro-meditation video on my YouTube channel as well where I do, it, I do a live example. But the way I do it is a micro-meditation is just at different moments throughout the day, you just stop and you take a breath. And you saw me do it here even in this recording, right? There was a moment where I was getting a little bit excited and I could feel like my thoughts were jumbling faster than my words and I just stopped. And mm -hmm. I took a breath. And I just went. And then I went on. Mm -hmm. And so I do this throughout the day. So like, for example, if I do it in little moments. Like, for example, if I'm opening a door, mm -hmm. I, I grab the door handle. And just before I turn, I feel the metal in my hand. I lean into it a little bit, feel my feet on the floor, and I just take one breath. And then I open the door and I go on. Hmm. Or if I'm doing dishes, I will feel the water running over my hands and I'll lean against the counter. And I always like to involve my, a little bit of my body in it, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'll just close my eyes for a moment and feel the feeling of the water running over my hand. And I'll just take a breath. And I don't stress about having to do it longer than that. Mm -hmm. But taking, like we breathe all the time, but taking a, con <laughs> taking a conscious breath is a whole different thing. Yes. Because I'm taking a moment to, and I'm giving, first of all, I'm taking that moment to be with myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm giving my own consciousness the message, you are important. You're worth taking this moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And you do that a few times during the day and you do that for a few weeks, it adds up. And it literally doesn't take more than a couple of seconds to do that at different moments throughout the day. You can do it when you're picking up a toy. Like, let's say you're, a toy fell under the couch and you're reaching under the couch just as you grab it before you pull it out. Like there's so many times we can do this. Yes. So that's the micro meditation. The micro self-compassion is the next one. Micro self-compassion is, again, throughout the day, we give ourselves little moments of compassion. Hmm. And I don't, this is not necessarily for big things, although it can also be for big things, but for little moments throughout the day. Like, let's say one of mine is like, I'm opening a jar and I couldn't open it. And my hand slipped and I hurt my, my hand. And so a lot of time I would just shake it off and go on. But no, that caused a little frustration in me and it caused me to be upset for a moment. And then it was a little bit of a loss and a failure. And I have all this stuff come up, right? And I know that if I take the time to tune in, I can feel all the stuff under the surface that normally I would ignore. Mm. So then I'm like, no, it's okay for fake. I love you. You tried. It didn't work out. That's okay. Clearly, you still have mistake stuff and failure stuff in your childhood. And I love you. And I love you, little fake. And then I go on with my day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sit there for an hour doing that, but I just give myself a little talk. Sometimes it's just a hug. Sometimes I just hold myself for a moment. You know, like I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll be like, it's or I'll say it's natural for you to feel that way. So mm -hmm. It's also self-empathy, self-compassion, self-empathy. They, they cross over, mm -hmm. right? But it's micro, meaning I don't have to take a long time. Yes. But it's the consistency of it. It builds up. And there's going to be some good leaking that happens from that too, right? Yes. And the third one is micro self-observation. And this is so important. So one, one of the things that I do with parents is I do, I've designed a lot of meditations for parents mm -hmm. um, to help with the mindset, to help with work with the emotions, to help with connecting with our kids. And one of them is the self-observation meditation, which is, uh, we do it for a half hour, but the micro self-observation is short. So the, the self-observation meditation, we pretend, we imagine, we use our imagination to imagine we're outside of our body and we're watching ourselves and we're watching the scene and we're watching the environment and we're watching the other people, but it's a little bit disembodied. It's a little bit objective because I'm not in, right? Mm. I'm watching my feelings. I'm watching my thoughts. I'm not repressing them. I'm watching them. Mm -hmm. And in the long meditation, we start from like, looking at ourselves from behind and then we're in front and then we're on the sides and then we go outside and then we go up out into outer space and we're like, oh, we try and practice really being observed. 
But the micro is where you just pop out for a second. I call it popping out. You just pop out for a second. <laughs> so again, I like to use opening a door. So you're opening a door, right? Or picking up a toy or writing an email or whatever you're doing. Or even right now I'm talking to you. I'm not popped out. Now I'm going to pop out. Now I'm watching myself talk to you. And it's a little bit weird because like I could see my hand moving now, which I didn't really notice before. I can <laughs> notice my posture. I notice myself watching you on the screen as we're talking. I'm noticing these things, but I'm not going to keep it up for a long time. So I'm going to stop doing it. And now I'm back. But I was really observing, right? And uh-huh. what happens is this gives me the ability to be more conscious in difficult moments because I've been practicing it in micro moments throughout the day. So then when my kid yells and tells me to F off because they didn't like what I did, and I naturally will pop out. And then I, because I've been practicing that, I can see the scene. Oh, my kid is struggling right now. They need me. They're not attacking me. They need me. Mm. And that's one of my sayings. Kids are not acting out. They're reaching out. Yes. But if I've practiced the self-observation and the environment, it's also uh, observing the environment, then I'll notice those deeper things I wouldn't have noticed if I was inside. Yes. And then I give myself a micro self-compassion and them saying, if I hurt your feelings, that's okay. That's reasonable. You're human too. Let's not project mm-hmm. that onto our kids, shall we? Let's, we'll deal with that with writing with my friends and with doing some dancing later to shake it off. And, and I also have a whole video, which is in my membership space about how to heal and respond when your kid says hurtful things to you in a way that mm. brings you closer together. And then you do a, a micro meditation where you take a deep breath, center yourself. All this happens automatically if you practice throughout the day. And then all mm. of a sudden you can, in those three micros, which take, you know, a second or two, then you can respond to your kid with so much more equanimity really going under the surface and tuning into their deep needs and tuning into, you know, how you can be most present and supportive with them. And you're also being kind to yourself through those practices too. Mm. You know, it, it has the beautiful side benefit of deepening your relationship with yourself. And I love that. I love myself so much more now than I ever have before. Compare myself to even five years ago, but especially like 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I love myself so much more now, you know, and I do little things all the time to bring care and compassion and ease and joy into my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really appreciate that about myself. And then I model that for my kid and I can see her doing that more and more as she develops in her own life. Well, that's so beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing those three practices with us and just all the wisdom that you've shared with us today. I will put links in the show notes to your community and to your Instagram and your YouTube channel, just so our listeners can come and find you and, and go deeper. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Mary. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Compassion Parenting Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What resonated with you? What questions came up? Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Compassion Parenting or within my free Facebook group, Parenting Well, Raising Compassionate and Productive Humans. Links are in the show notes. If you've gained insight from the time we've shared today, leave a review and subscribe. There's a quick how-to in the show notes. Have a blessed week. May you love yourself, your family, and the world wisely and well.